such a famous eye But your eyes, they shine so bright When you pick up your old guitar It makes this crazy world come right You play the splendid chord That unifies all things you Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman. I have in-depth conversations with a fascinating diversity of musicians worldwide, and I hope these personal stories highlight the incredible breadth and depth of a life in music for listeners everywhere. You can listen to all these episodes on your favorite podcast player or on YouTube. My website is linked in the description for detailed show notes and links. Kavisha Matsella is a renowned Australian songwriter and singer who has won both an ARIA award and an Australia Day honour. We talked about her work through the lenses of social justice, community building, and the search for deeper meaning and connection. This is a personal in-depth conversation with lots of beautiful singing in both Italian and English. You can use the detailed timestamps to jump to a song or a topic, but I encourage you to listen through and listen to the stories behind the fearless note. I'm an independent podcaster who needs my listeners' help to keep this huge project going. Every dollar helps, and the link is in the description. Now, let's get to our conversation. Hi, Kavisha. Thanks so much for joining me here today. It's the morning for you and the evening for me. Yeah, it's so lovely to be back. And you were just saying it was the first day of winter in Australia as we record yeah. this. <laughs> and I'm looking at what you're wearing. And I'm going, oh, you lucky thing. <laughs> There's so much to talk about. I know you're very well known in Australia, but worldwide uh, people may not have heard of you. Mm. You just celebrated an important anniversary. Maybe we could start with the project uh, with the Italian songs. Yeah, sure. Um <clears throat> uh, just last week, we celebrated 30 years of uh, anniversary of um, a documentary film that I was involved with, which was about my very first Italian women's choir. Uh, I started it in, um, well, basically at the end of 89, but the film was made in 1992 and premiered in 1993. And uh, it was really about in a way, me making up for lost time in the sense that I had rejected uh, my heritage as a child, or I felt embarrassed really that, you know, it was sort of one of those things where you, you as a child, you, you just want to fit in. And if you're different, if you have cultural, different culture, sometimes at school you're uh, made fun, fun of or made to feel, uh, at, you know, you're an outsider. Anyway, so I spent a lot of my school time uh, trying to fit in and not liking the difference. And um, and then after, when I was 21, I, um, I met a beautiful Sicilian guy and I also fell in love with the folk music and I went on a search to learn these songs. And um, the way I did it was really through meeting people, listening to old recordings, I guess in a folkloric way, which I didn't realize that's what I was doing. But I was just following this seam of gold. And um, and it ended up that the very first concert that um, 
I did with this wonderful group of women who I uh, met in Fremantle, the very first community concert we did, there was a filmmaker there and he said, I'd love to make a documentary about these wonderful women um, because my mother died when I was eight and she sang those songs and I'd love to, and I didn't really believe him. Um, but in 1992, he came back and he had, the, had raised the money and everything. And we had an incredible five-week period making the film, which included going to Italy. And it premiered in 93. So we're celebrating, I can't believe it, the 30-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. And your relationship with these different choirs, I mean, it's evolved. You're, you've worked with lots of people who don't have an Italian background to teach them. Yep songs well it's interesting i grew up singing in school choirs um that was a big part of my music education and um when i met the women i hadn't you know i went to art school i didn't i didn't train uh, in music um i tried to i went to university but i got kicked out for talking <laughs> But the ironic thing was I was complaining that they were talking too much about music <laughs> instead of playing it. Uh, anyway, um, I followed a folk path as opposed to a classical music path, um, although I did do classical piano up, uh, while I was at school. <clears throat> and I loved it very much. And my favourite thing was going in at lunchtime and just playing and getting lost in the music, you know, uh, getting away from all the demands of parents and teachers and all that. So I was very much a musician in my soul, you know. I didn't have quite any realisation what I was doing. I was just immersing myself in, in beautiful piano music. Well, you were saying about, you know, I'd asked about these community choirs and then you were saying you grew up with choirs. Yeah, thank you for pulling me back on track. Um, I... Yeah, I I, lo- I I was singing in the school choir. And then when I met these women, uh, I, I just, I had just heard the um, incredible album, The Mysterious Voices of Bulgaria. Do, do you know that beautiful album, that seminal album that came out? And everyone just went, what? You know, what are these voices doing? And where are they coming from? They're coming from this beautiful the peasant culture, the earth, you know, it was like the earth itself singing. And when I heard these women sing, I thought, that's the same sound, a similar sound, but much rougher, you know. Um, And I thought, I want to sing with them and I want to learn the songs because I have, I don't know these songs. I I know, I, I knew a couple of songs, but I knew a few songs, but not what they knew. And, um, so we um, just basically with the local council, I went to the local arts office and said, I found this secret society of women <laughs> and I'd love to do something with them. And she said, well, yeah, let's do a little project. And it was 12 weeks and um, <clears throat> different people bought little patches of songs and we stuck them all together and, you know, we did a concert. The second part of that was me writing songs about them. So in a way, they birthed me as a songwriter. So it was this really incredible, in a way, the folk tradition, which is to sing songs of the social condition. Uh, They were teaching me those songs, and 
I was writing about their life. So it was a continue, continuum, you know? Mm. Now, I believe you have kind of a, a sweet story about the first concert with those women when they got up on stage. <laughs> yeah, well, see, you know, not being a trained choir leader, I, I was just doing everything from instinct and enthusiasm. And um, <laughs> they walked on stage and they were singing away. And, and I thought, they look a bit odd. What is it? Uh, they all had their handbags on. And they all, I had forgotten to tell them that they could put their handbags at the side of the, the stage and then walk on. Yeah, that, that was <laughs> pretty funny. Now, in terms of your project with the Italian songs before we leave that, I know you were prepared to sing a, a few songs today. Is there some of that repertoire that you still include as part of your concerts? Or Yeah, well, I, I yes, I do. Um, yeah, um, one of them is a song. Do you want me to do that Take, now? Or? Yeah, sure, if you feel like it. <clears throat> I haven't really warmed up. It's uh, nine o'clock in the morning here. I'll just see what happens, eh? Mm, I, I have had a bit of a cold, so I'm, I'm a bit husky. Yeah, there we go. So um, this song, this is one of the songs that... Um, one of the first songs that I ever learned when I went when I started this journey of um, uh, rediscovering or discovering my musical heritage and I learned songs from all over Italy and the women taught me some of those songs and actually I taught them some songs they didn't know so it was this lovely two-way thing going on and um this is um I'll put it this way. How's the mic now? Is that This is a migration song about a girl whose uh, mother is combing her hair and the mother has dreams for her to be married and give her grandchildren and all those sort of dreams but the daughter she wants to migrate like the rest of the people in the village they're all going to America to Canada to Australia so it's a 19th century immigration song Mamma mia damicentoli che in Australia voglia andare Mamma mia dammi cento lire che in Australia voglia andare Cento lire io te le do ma in Australia non ho Cento lire io te 
I'll give you the money, but to Australia, no. You just want to go and seek your fortune and I'll never see you again. And the brothers at the window, they say, Mom, let her go. And so she goes and there's a storm in the middle of the sea and the boat sinks and she drowns. And the mom calls out to the fishermen, fishermen who fish the sea, drag your nets along the bottom and bring my daughter to me. And the ghost of the girl sings, for the words of my mother were the truth. Quando furono in mezzo al mare, il bastimento si sprofondò. Quando furono in mezzo al mare, il bastimento si sprofondò. Pescatore che peschi pesci, porta a galla il mio amor. Pescatore che peschi pesci, porta a galla il mio amor. Le parole della mia mamma eran tutta la verità le parole della mia mamma eran tutta la verità le parole della mia mamma eran tutta la verità I love, I really love that song and what I love even more is because it's a song of a certain era when you look into a crowd and you see the elderly Italians there they know it and they join in and they have they cry because uh, they remember their own mothers singing that song mm. so own grandparents and yeah as we record this um the my episode with our Irish fiddler Martin Hayes was recently released. And in that conversation, we talked quite a bit about immigration. And he was talking mm. about what they called the American wake when people would immigrate. And they would yeah. have like a, people ha hadn't died, but they were going to, to emigrate from Ireland. Yeah. And then yes. we were talking about how, you know, for a lot of migrants now, they, they can't afford, it's not safe for them to go back to where they came from. It's just like it was 100, 
50 years ago when people yeah. would never see their parents again it's it is um migration is a, a kind of a death as you say um i mean i migrated with my family when i was three but i can still f remember arriving in australia and feeling oh how strange and then the first my first memory <clears throat> i think of Conch, real conscious memory I've got some visual memory but audio memory is the sound of the Australian magpies hmm. which I really love but I'd never heard anything like that before because in England you know you have the beautiful European bird sounds a different song and then coming to Australia it was um, just a completely uh, different music you know, mm -hmm. and I remember thinking, gosh, this is really strange. <laughs> but yeah. I love it now. <laughs> yeah. Your mum is Anglo-Burmese, so she had yeah. met your dad in England? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they were working together. My mum was a, a trainee nurse and my father was an orderly. Um, and they uh, met in the Stoke Mandeville uh, Hospital, which is a famous spinal hospital. Mm. So he'd immigrated from Italy to England. Yeah. Now, there's, it's interesting how history also plays a part of, of, of immigration in the sense that um, in World War Two, II, the, um, when the Italians were taking over parts, they were uh, allied with uh, Germany and also they were taking over parts of Africa. They wanted to part of Mussolini's push to colonize Africa. And my dad's um, uncle was captured in Africa. He was a soldier. He was captured in Africa by the British. And the British said to the Italians, you can either go to a prisoner of war camp or you can work on the farms hmm. in England. And so a lot of the Italian servicemen worked the farms in, in, in England um, and after the war, the British government let them stay. And so that's how our family made it o across to to England. Hmm. Interesting. Um, that um, my um, Zia Francesca, my mum's, sorry, my nonna's sister, she, yes, yeah, so it was her dad that was captured. So she went over to join her dad and then she said to my dad, come over, there's plenty of work here. And so my poor daddy just got in, he got off the, the boat to Calais. Uh, um, you know, he went via France and um, they said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going on holiday to see my auntie. And they said, hmm, let's see what's in your suitcase. And they opened this letter and the guy could speak Italian. It says there's plenty of work here. <laughs> I said, sorry, young man, you're going back. So my poor dad got deported uh, the first time. And of course, you know, after a couple, of, I think a couple of years or a year of, of saving up to come back, this time they got the proper papers. And it was funny because when my dad met the guy, the same customs guy, <laughs> and the guy said to him, you, again. And he and my dad waved to the papers. I got the papers this time, <laughs> and they just laughed. And, you know, uh, 
that's how the, our family got to England. I got to be born there uh, when my par after my parents met, and um, then at that time, um, then they left the hospital and set up a business, a hospitality business. You know, they bought a little workers' cafe. My my parents bought a little workers' cafe in Surbiton called the Penguin Lounge. And then the rest of the family came over to England to all work in the cafe. So we were like, it was very tribal, you know. And my dad was a very um, open person in the sense, you know, he married uh, an Anglo-Burmese lady, which was a bit of a shock for my grandma because she thought my mum was Chinese. She said, oh, you have brought home a Chinese. <laughs> and uh, she, but eventually all those differences when they, you know, got to know each other melted and even family from Burma came and visited and all worked in a cafe with the Italian family. So it was real multicultural. Mm -hmm. So we all lived upstairs. The cafe was on the ground floor and then we lived upstairs. Yeah. So, and then um, the Australian government at that time was putting out um, uh, advertisements to populate come to Australia. It was a £10 ticket. You heard of this term, £10 poms. Have you heard of that? No. Yeah, well, that was a, <clears throat> a special ticket you could buy uh, if you were successful in your application to Australia for 10 quid adults and kids were free so we were free um my mom paid 10 pounds because of her because of her burmese anglo burmese they she was considered part of the commonwealth so she got the 10 pound ticket and my dad had to pay the full amount but we got on a boat to australia and they said you could try it out for two years you had to try out a business or do something for two years so they were trying to populate uh, australia <laughs> and you've been involved in your social justice work with refugees and different migrants to Australia? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I suppose because of um, my mom's refugee story, when she was a little kid, um, <clears throat> the Japanese were bombing Rangoon and, she, and her family were living in, in Burma. And my grandfather her dad was district commissioner of north northwest burma near the upper chinwin and he knew what was going on and he warned my grandma he says something's coming something's coming we have to get ready to flee we had to get ready to go so they packed everything up and they they went on this journey which is now called the trek where millions of people headed on the road out of burma towards india and they came in through Nagaland on the east of, of, of India. And um, so she was about, uh, I think she was about eight years old when that happened. So 1942, when Japan uh, bombed Burma, Rangoon. And um, so my grandma, who was um, a singer, she sang they sang nursery rhymes all the way to India because they didn't want the kids to freak out so by the end of the journey the the men who were the bearers carrying my mum on the <laughs> sort of chair sedan chair <clears throat> they they all knew all the songs by the time they got to India <laughs> mm. 
Did you learn any of those songs? I've got a few of them, but I haven't really, um, oh, what's, um, oh, you see that watermelon hanging on the vine. Oh, I wish that watermelon, it was mine. Oh, the white folk, they are foolish. They need a heap of sense than to leave their watermelon on the vine. Papayas are sweet, and mangoes they are good, and peaches they are very, very fine. Oh, but give me, oh, give me, oh, how I wish you would, that juicy watermelon on the vine. <laughs> nice, it's amazing how those things stay with people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my mum used to sing all those <clears throat> funny little songs, and yeah. Mm -hmm. And you sang with your brother growing up? Yeah, I have four brothers. Oh, okay. So my mom used to, <laughs> my mom played guitar. And I remember when we were small at Christmas time, we, you know, we had a little choir, if you like, there's like five of us. You know? And so we'd all be took, 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 a bit like the Von Trapp family, <laughs> singing for the neighbors, you know. Mm. Yeah. So is it your twin brother that you had sung professionally with? No, my third brother. Okay. Yeah, I've got four brothers, so the second youngest. He has the most amazing voice. And he was like a child soprano in the cathedral choir in Perth, in St. Mary's Cathedral Choir. <clears throat> and when his voice broke, it was a terrible experience for him because all of a sudden he wasn't a star anymore or wanted. And he was really kind of th thrown on the heap. They didn't prepare, I guess in those days, no one prepared anyone that you just had to suck it up, you know. <laughs> and um, so he, um, but his voice developed into this incredible, um, he can sing tenor and he can sing baritone. So he's got a beautiful range, you know. Mm. So I've been, so in the film, um, The Joys of the Women, which is uh, one of the scenes is me playing with him, playing for the women and, and another one of our friends. And, uh, where we were a trio called Ipapavari, which means the poppies. And um, so we, we started learning all these beautiful Italian folk songs, mainly from the South, and that quite a lot of them would be considered early music because the the um, band we were learning them from were all students at the early music department in the in the um, University of Napoli, and they had uh, created a band called Nuova Compagnia di Canto Popolare, New Company of Popular Songs, and that that's the recordings we learnt off. They're the recordings we learnt off. So my brother, having this sort of classical background in a way, which he was singing, you know, Benjamin Britten and all sorts of amazing things. And they're also, you know, the from the cathedral repertoire. And uh, so this music was felt really natural for us to, 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 to progress to. I can send you a, a film of us singing. Well, I saw, 
I've seen a couple things on YouTube, and of course in the um, in the Joys of the Women, I saw that. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, mm. which um, mm. I guess we'll be able to link that to this episode. If it's... Yeah, great. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Mm. So we had sort of brushed over the. Um, I mean, we we circled around, but we were talking about migrants and working with refugees because I know that's something oh, that we you've done. Yeah, uh, sorry, I went on a big story about my mom, didn't I? Well, that's fantastic. Uh, no, it's good oh, to hear good. that. Um, well, I suppose that. So I guess because that's in my blood, when the refugee situation in Australia um, started being very apparent, um, particularly with Bosnia, the Bosnian refugees coming over, the Kosovo story, um, and I was sharing a house with my best friend who who is an ESL teacher, English as a second language teacher. And she was teaching a lot of refugees. And um, so we collaborated together on some plays. Um, it was a way of teaching English through telling their story and singing songs and getting them to sing along. And, uh, and we toured. <laughs> we actually toured with the group of refugees from her class. We taught other um, English language schools with our little show. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just fantastic. Um, there is a kind of performing where you go to a very rarefied atmosphere and you're the star and, you know, you've got the crowds and all that. But I prefer, I mean, that's lovely. Sure, it's lovely. and and But I just love people's stories. And I love, through the art of theatre and storytelling, how the the pain of those stories gets transformed and there's a kind of a healing that happens. Um, and just getting up and staying their story in front of people and having people listen to you again, again, again. It, it's a very... Um, I could see how their confidence grew. They were... They weren't sort of like this anymore. They just they'd opened up, and um, they were being celebrated for your for their courage, and um, I don't think they ever, you know, uh, we we would gather with people for a few weeks and create these shows, and after a while we wouldn't see them again. But they carried any time they saw us in the street. Ah, oh, my friend, <laughs> you know, it was and people from all countries, you know, Africa. Afghanistan, uh, India, Burma, Nepal, everywhere. So very, I love that kind of work. Mm. So Kavisha, were these adults and you were performing for school children? Oh, adults for adults. Okay. Yeah, um, schools are a bit harder <laughs> to, to get into these days. They call it incursion, uh, which means you're interrupting them, even though you're bringing them something uh, <laughs> interesting I hope <laughs> um, it's often very hard to you have to be so you have to really have an end to schools though I've done a lot of school shows with um, a company wonderful company called Musica Viva Musica Viva in Australia and they their company brings classical music out to Australia and they had a schools program so I was part of a world music program called Journey Journey in the 90s when I first arrived in Melbourne I did a three-year stint in schools. Um, we had a suitcase 
Again, the theme of travel migration has suitcase with all these objects from different countries. And then when we picked out the object, the kids had to guess which country it came from. And then we play a song from there. Yeah, it was really fun. It was so, so much fun. And uh, also we wanted to show the kids there's songs about place, not just um, songs like love songs or pop songs that you hear on the radio. So you can write songs about your experience and um, the, their favourite, favourite song was um, a song about Melbourne written by a good friend of ours, Frank Jones, called My Brown Yarra. And it goes, uh, it's funny, They when we arrived at the school, they said, can you play the My Brown Yarra? I said, that's the final song in the show because we wanted to say at the end of the show, wherever you come from, you have that's a place there's a song for that place you know and um i'll just see if i can remember it <clears throat> there's a part of me that will always be rolling slowly to the sea and when i come to that river i get a shiver Take me down to my brown yarra When I die, put me in a barrow Wheel me down to the banks of the yarra Dig a hole, both deep and narrow Bury me at my brown yarra that's the song the kids wanted to sing most of all, which was the saddest song of the whole show. And the final, final song. And it was amazing because we asked the kids why they liked it. And they said, oh, it reminds me of my pet who died. Or it reminds me of my grandma, um, you know, who's passed away. So it allowed them to feel... The, the, the sadness in a sweet and safe way so in the same thing happened you know when we when we worked with the refugees and getting them to tell their story because we were held in um the, the we, we made a family of actors and musicians all together it was safe and they could tell their most painful story and it was transformed and um, they could have this you know it was it was not trauma was less traumatic you know i guess you never get over the, the there's always a trauma but there was also a sense of oh wow we we've survived we've survived and we we've met all these wonderful australians well you know or people from all nations who live in australia a bit like canada and uh yeah Hi, just a quick break from the episode. I'm an independent podcaster and I really do need my listeners' help. Please consider buying me a coffee. The link to my Kofi page is in the description. Every dollar helps me cover the costs of this huge project. Thanks so much. So Kavisha, you've performed all over and for small venues and huge venues, but I think when you started, you you weren't so outgoing like it was harder for you on stage <laughs> I couldn't speak oh, of course now you can't shut me up <laughs> um yeah I <clears throat> I was in a band with um five guys and I let them do all the talking 
<laughs> that was a band called <laughs> Rich and Famous, <laughs> of which we were neither, but we thought we'd just go straight to the top. <laughs> so I was I started off in this band with the five guys. Oh, they were all they were more experienced musicians than me, so they were very au fait with the crowd and all that. And uh, I just say a thing or two here and there, but let them do the talking. And then when I left them and I came over to Melbourne and I was trying to get gigs, I realised if I didn't talk to the crowd, I wouldn't get any, I wouldn't eat, basically. So my my first mentors in Melbourne were the Aboriginal artists, um, Archie Roach, Ruby Hunter, Kev Carmody, the Titus. Um, they were the people that I was um, connecting to. And I saw how they were with the crowd and how comfortable. It was like the, 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 the place was like a big lounge room. And they're all friends sitting around in the lounge room and they're just sharing stories. And I, I loved that. And I thought, well, that's what I want to develop, you know. And that's what I guess happened. Mm. Mm. Now, many of your stories, that, uh, sorry, songs you've written over the years are, are narrative. They're more like stories. And then you always have this great chorus that everyone can join in mm. on. So I, I'm sure I'm one of your many listeners. If I'm in my car listening to a Kavisha album, I'm definitely singing along on the chorus. Oh, good on you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's the idea. Um, yeah, I, I, I love, I mean, in a way, I probably overdo it. Uh, but I pretty like, well, love getting people to sing from the first song. <laughs> because I... I don't know if I'm doing it to make me feel comfortable or them, you know. <laughs> but anyway, that's what it is. Mm. Well, I'm sure you have a, a little list of songs you were thinking of singing. I mean, I had a couple of that were my favorites, but it's... You're oh, the... which ones are they? Well, I really love um, Philosophy Man, which I know is about oh, your partner. Oh, yeah, I, I definitely could do that. Yeah, do you want to say something about it? Okay, um, yeah, sure. Well, this is a song I wrote for my husband and it's a love song. And I've, although of course, I guess if I think about it, all my songs are love songs to a certain extent, but I could never really write a song that said, I love you, baby, la, 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 la. Cause it's all like, to me, very cheesy, you know? Uh, <laughs> so um when this song came i was so delighted because it is a love song celebrating our love story uh but it's a bit quirky as well so and i was very pleased it finally happened and it happened um it happened like i think nine years after we met <laughs> took me nine years to cook up those emotions into a song <laughs> Okay, so uh, so we went to live. Uh, we 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 went to my husband works in community mental health, and he was made redundant. So he said, "Let's use this opportunity to go head to the country and live in the country, countryside." And so we moved out of Melbourne. And we went to live in a beautiful town uh, of 7,000 people, uh, 120 k's northwest of Melbourne, up the Calder Highway. 
in what the indigenous people call Jajawaran country. And it's like surrounded by forest, farms, um, and you've got your beautiful rivers and a big, big, big sky. So when you, you know, we, because it was um, close enough to go to the city to do stuff and come back, often you come back home and it was dark and you get out of your car and you just go, oh my God, the stars are so beautiful. So I wanted to celebrate that as well. Top of the ladder 
we'd rather do Tai Chi Waving our hands through the air with our care In our garden by the sea I enjoyed that. I wasn't sure if I was going to get the notes this morning, but somehow. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, it's it's early for you and you're getting over this cold and your voice is so beautifully controlled despite all that. Like you have oh, such... thank you. <laughs> it's not just the beauty of your sound, but you have like this amazing control. And I was actually curious as a music teacher myself, you've worked with so many community choirs. And yep. actually, I wanted to ask you about, I think, is it Moon's a Balloon? Is that the one of the projects? Ooh. So you've worked with people who may can't necessarily match pitches, or I was curious how you how you do that with people. Well, I, I play a few games with them. I think the thing is, a lot of people, uh, you know, okay, you, 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 quite a few people have suffered grumpy music teachers who told them to mime, but they're dying to sing. But they just needed a, some a little bit of extra attention. Of course, the teacher couldn't do it because they got a tight schedule. They probably, I uh, know, definitely couldn't afford, you know, private singing lessons. So I realised that there's this gap in 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 people. See, I, I mean, I knew how to sing simply because my mom sang and my grandma sang, and then on my dad's side, his um, brother is a you know, a, a prof he was a professional singer as well. So there was singing all around. So in a way, I feel I had no choice. It was just there. But I first thing I asked people, I said, did your parents sing to you? They went, no. I went, of course you can't sing. No one showed you, you know. So don't feel bad because they kind of feel tense. They want to learn and they feel embarrassed almost that they don't know how to do this thing. I said, okay, so let's... um." So we play some games where I get people in a circle. I say to this person, okay, you just sing a note and the next person has to listen and sing that what mimic what you do. So I teach them through I just I just say mimic that person. So I don't put it in a musical term. You unmusicalize it and just make I said, you know, when you were a kid, uh you you learnt to speak from your mom. And she said a word and you said a word. So now this same game, this is the same game. So I've been able to, um, you know, help bridge that gap with just those little games. And I do need a strong singer or two in the group. And I say, listen to them and do what they do. And uh, 
and then and then eventually it takes a bit of time but we for example I, I'm, I'm working in a um, wonderful program called Wild at Heart every Wednesday I teach musicians with disabilities invisible and visible and um, they're at an emerging state of you know their songwriting and so on and they 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 they're used to sort of playing guitar and singing their own thing but not in a choir and we've decided to try to introduce them to the idea of choir which is listening to other people as well as yourself and blending in and last week was complete chaos they just oh I was going I don't know if this is really gonna work and then this week yesterday which was yesterday they somehow got it so you have to kind of allow chaos I think chaos um, explained to me by um, uh, is the guy who discovered Tuckatina have you heard of Tuckatina Tuckatina is a um, rhythm and vocalizing system which is um, kind of it's a wonderful um, system of teaching percussion but with the voice um, the I can't remember his name I'm sorry but he said at his workshop that I went to that chaos is a very interesting state it's um, very important for creativity because chaos is when old knowledge has left new knowledge hasn't come in and there's this state of apparent confusion but what it's happening is your brain is rebooting and then the new information can come so they weren't used to my style of teaching like for me it was like they were listening to a new language they had to get what I was you know on about because I've just been brought into the program a few weeks ago and the um, the boss of the program said I really want people to do something that will bring them more together because right now they're all in their little disparate um, projects with their mentors let's do something we can bring them all together so I said well I'll do a choir for you if you like you know so so we did so we do one hour every week every Wednesday and uh, I have to say last night yesterday I was so happy that the chaos kind of moved to the next stage but but you have to go through the chaos yeah so that's my advice is don't be worried about chaos just uh, don't, you have we have because you know when when you're a musician you you love to hear the beautiful sound the fine sound not the uh, before we get there you know <laughs> but uh, it's just really about people relaxing and when they relax and you say like you've got to listen to each other listen to yourselves blending it's really about becoming aware I realize that music the art of music is like turning yourself into a big ear your whole body must become the ear not just here you know and you become sensitive to what's going on around you and you become so so when people have mental health issues right there's a lot of noise going on so you have to um, take them out of the noise and I do that through chanting uh, things like Aum, Aum, Aum. And yesterday we did that chanting that and I could feel all the mental noise just going down 
Okay, and then we introduce the ideas of the music, and they they could receive it better. Mm. Now you've practiced meditation in many different traditions and forms through most, mm. much of your life. Do you mm. want to share? I thought, um, like in terms of your your new work with Empty Sky album and and those performances, or do you want to circle back sure. to the beginning? Or well, um, I, I grew up in a Catholic sort of environment and that's I guess where we could say that's where all the music was happening because we were in choirs and singing in church was wonderful that was the best part for me Um, but in terms of the actual spirituality um, that felt very superficial and I wanted more something more so I went to my first meditation retreat when I was 17 and since then which was a Vipassana Buddhist retreat. And since then I've been always doing a lot of reading and searching and especially this thing called Nada, Nada Yoga, which is sound yoga. And uh, during the COVID era, COVID times of the recent years, when I couldn't gig, I used that as a time to study sound healing. And... Um, but I'd also started to develop this idea, which I, I had to find a name for it, called Empty Sky. Empty Sky really is the peaceful place in your heart. So when you sing a beautiful song or something that touches you, you when it finishes, you go into a beautiful, restful silence. So I wanted to uh, celebrate... Um, the, the beautiful poetry of the mystic poets and bringing people together into silence as well. So Sarah, if you like sharing silence through song. And so um, the idea is we, we sit in a circle and I'll introduce a song which only has about four lines. It mustn't have too many lines in it, so it must be easy for people to grab onto. And they sing it over and over and it puts them brings them into a very centered heart space. And then when the song finishes, we have silence for a few minutes. And then the next song will start and so on. And usually there's about five or six songs in an hour session. And so during the COVID, just before COVID, I made, I made an album of um, these meditative songs, I guess you'd like to call them. And we never got to launch it because then COVID came along and, you know, everybody had to lock down. And then I went into study of the sound healing to make use of the time I couldn't get out and about. Mm. But now you do these these special concerts where there's no applause, like everyone's participatory and then everyone's... Yeah, yeah, you don't applaud, yeah, yeah. So I recently actually, you know, I did my singer-songwriter thing at the festivals, but I also had an opportunity to uh, do The Empty Sky as well, which I was so excited about because the festival director came up to me and said, oh, it is so good for people to share silence at a music festival. (laughs) Because usually it's all, yeah, stimulation, stimulation, watch this, watch that. Oh, they're amazing. Oh, they're amazing. You know, it's all about excitement. 
whereas this is reversing that and just um, kind of connecting with what music really brings us to, which is to our hearts, you know, uh, but really um, a dedicated listening, yeah. Great fun. When we had spoken before, you had told me a story about your mum and the priest and her objection to you going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when I went to, my mother was was a very devout Catholic. And when she, when I announced that I was going to this 10-day silent Buddhist retreat, she was really, no, no, you can't go, you mustn't go. Because... Um, the Catholics are very anxious about what they perceive as a possible devil's playground situation where the devil will come and interfere with your mind if you if you look inside. Uh, you know, you've got to... It's very... They, To my mind, um, and I apologise to any devout Catholics out there, but to my mind, it's very outer... They don't. They don't allow you to go inside yourself and have your own relationship with the spirit or the divine, if you like. So my mother was really upset about it. She said, "Oh, I don't know what you're doing. You, this is terrible. You've got to go and see the." I said, "No, I want to go. I want to go." She goes, "Okay, well, you have to see the priest." So okay, I'll, I'll go and see the priest. And so I went to see the priest, and the priest is. I, I, I can't remember his name, but he was, when I came, knocked on the door, said, come in and went into his lounge room and he immediately lit up a cigarette <laughs> and he had a glass of whiskey. So tell me, what's this about? <laughs> and I said, well, my mum doesn't want me to go to this meditation retreat. It's a 10 day silent Buddhist retreat. Uh, what all, what's it about? And I said, well, to be honest, I don't know. That's why I'm going. <laughs> but I want to learn how to meditate. He goes, oh, hmm. Well, do you have to go to this thing? I said, no, I don't have to, but I really want to. He goes, oh. Well, whatever you do, just observe. And I thought that was pretty funny because the whole thing about Buddhism is just observing. <laughs> So he was, his way was saying, well, don't get involved, just observe. Stay on the outside of it all. There you go. But it was a meditation retreat that um, changed my life. Um, it really taught me, it empowered me. Uh, it gave me an insight to how my mind was so busy and scattered and it helped me really get very focused and that, really stood me so well in everything mm. not that I'm incredibly focused all the time but it it means that I haven't access to a tool I can use yeah mm. you mentioned Kavisha that you went to art school when you were young I think at least mm. one of your albums has your painting on it yeah yeah it, which one is that love and sorrow yeah beautiful. yeah oh thank you um I love painting um, I really was crazy about art when I was, I didn't really think, you know, because we were singing all the time. We were in Estedford's. We were, I was singing in a little folk band at lunchtime. 
I didn't think of it as a career as such, but I loved art and I wanted to be an artist. And my father, coming from Italy, um, was very... Um, my father really loved that idea that I should be... Uh, and he even at one time wanted to send me to Florence to an art school. Um, but it wasn't the right time for me to go. Uh, but I had a little space in the... There was a um, chook shed <laughs> that I... Empty chook, chook shed, the <laughs> chooks were gone. But I just sort of cleared the space and I made a... Uh, a space to paint and I didn't have oil paints at that stage but I had gouache loved painting with gouache so I've always been into drawing and even when I yeah and I um and that's actually how what happened I started singing at a little wine bar to pay for my paints for art school and then people kept asking me oh could you sing here could you sing there and that, that the music part grew the art uh, di didn't because I had an incident where one of the senior art lecturers um, <clears throat> I was in a I'd entered my drawings into a the university guild of undergraduates university drawing prize and I won to my surprise I won and I couldn't believe it and on the um, the night they were announcing everything this senior art lecturer came in very drunk and he threw wine on my work and he said that's shit and uh and and everyone laughed because he was a very powerful man and I at that point I said to myself I don't want to be part of the art world and I think I'll be a musician <laughs> because I always had a, a fight do I do music do I do art what, what what's my future going to be and I have to thank him because he really made it clear you know, he just went, he, he, he pushed me onto the music path. And it's been great, you know, and now I'm gradually I'm coming back. But I held that trauma for a long time and I never wanted to show people my um, work. But, you know, remember when I told you we went to that lovely little country town that were full of artists and some really lovely people encouraged me to have an exhibition which I did I did and uh, I nearly sold it everything I would have sold everything if I hadn't held back a few pieces that um, my husband said you're not selling that I want that <laughs> okay okay you can have that but um, it was like a it was a real healing uh, it was great it was great and I would love to do more mm. wow that's that's quite a story did you just leave the school after that and you didn't come back? No, I continued I, because I, I loved art school so much. But the funny thing, what was even more painful, about, I suppose, about that, that guy, he, he, um, we all wanted to be in his painting class. And we talked about how wouldn't it be great if we could get into his painting class because he has the secret of art, mm. <laughs> which um, I didn't realize what a... Um, horrible person he was actually was um, well he suffered a moment of jealousy he had his you know he was also a big drinker he was an alcoholic so he wasn't really a sane person uh, but you know when you're young and naive you, you don't consider all those things mm. um, but 
you know, it was what it was and I've got over it and it's fine. Hmm. <laughs> so one of the awards you've won is the ARIA Award, which is sort of the Australian hmm. Grammy, is that sort of? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. For my second album, which was produced by a wonderful singer-songwriter and he's also toured a lot overseas. His name's Mick Thomas. He had a a band called Weddings, Parties, Anything, and he's a marvellous story writer as well. And uh, he was uh, my um, musical director, if you like, for the second album, Fisherman's Daughter. Mm -hmm. And uh, that one, uh, Aria, yeah. Did that help your career in Australia a lot in terms of the type of concerts you could do? I, I think all those things really do help. I mean, personally... Um, I, I sometimes I get dubious about awards. I wonder if they really do make a difference. But I have to say, I think, you know, when you tell people they don't know you, then someone says, oh, she won an aria. All of a sudden they go, oh, she must be serious then, mm. you know. So it is useful. It is handy. And it did help. And yeah. I'm grateful. <laughs> mm. <laughs> One of my other... Um really favorite songs of yours is sing for no one sing for everyone oh yeah 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 that's fun i i love that too um yeah i wanted to write a song i was thinking you know it is such a in our materialistic world being a musician you feel a little bit like a freak and (laughs) um because people say who are not favorite music or don't know much about music they go well what's your real job you know because music is uh, ephemeral you know it's this incredible thing uh, while you're in it it's real and then boom it's gone so uh, you know unless you produce a cd or something you you don't exist in a way you know uh so mm. i wanted to write a song um about being a musician uh, and and about music and um, and I and I this again this town that I'm telling you about Castlemaine which is full of artists when we moved to Castlemaine um, there was we we moved into a rickety little miners shack from 1907 it was on the hill with the most lamentable shambolic veranda that if you leaned on the um balcony you could fall into the garden so you have to be careful but it had the best view had the best view of the stars and you were a little bit up from the town so you could see the lights of the town it was it was a happy place it was my happy place to sit and play guitar so this is um the first song I wrote on the veranda and Philosophy Man was the second song I wrote. (laughs) Before we were born song was there Pulled us from the womb for us to care Surely will be there. 
song says, oh, please use me, you're my voice, you're my hands, fashion me into a melody. much thank you thank you <laughs> so a song like that in terms of your creative process did you get sort of the hook and then all the lyrics kind of came tumbling out afterwards how does that work I think I write lyrics first because the the direction where the lyrics are going guides me I kind of hear the music mm -hmm. when I when I read the lyrics I went oh that sounds kind of like well it's my attempt at a gypsy jazz sort of style of a song and it's the first song that I've really written like that and I've written a few since then with that kind of style and um, because I tend to write a lot of ballads mm. a lot of really sad ballads <laughs> and you know someone said to me once oh you write epic songs don't you ever write about tables and chairs or something you know <laughs> anyway this is um this song um, 
just came I could just kind of hear like a very cool little gypsy jazz band playing it and of course I'm not a gypsy jazz band but that was my <laughs> attempt of create evoking so all, every little song is like a little world a little theater you know and that's why I don't stick to one style I I look at the song and I kind of from the lyrics I think though every now and then I'll get a melody but for me it's harder to to do it the other way around fit words into a melody mm-hmm. than the other way around mm. and do you find that so, you're um being steeped in a lot of the Italian song that that's influenced a little bit of your melodic writing definitely definitely um because I find the one what do they call it one four five or whatever you call it I don't know you know the patterning of the chords the one four one five one four you know a lot of pop songs are got this very patterned uh, I find it utterly boring but I've I had to have I've had the benefit of uh, in my musical DNA of having all these incredibly beautiful uh, melodic chordal changes that are just, um, uh, you know. like that which is I suppose a bit of Spanish feeling in there but you know that's Neapolitan music with the with the big Spanish influence because Spain was uh, taken over Naples for 300 years you know so there's all this um, or there's this uh, Arabic influence too stuff going on and so I'm 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 all over the place with my musical influences yeah and speaking of modal um you I'm sure you've crossed paths with Lindsay Pollock who I oh I love I love Lindsay actually Lindsay was a big influence on me because he really um helped me he was like a I don't know he's like a spiritual guide in a way to a lot of musicians in Australia without <clears throat> promoting himself as such but the fact he is such a um, <clears throat> he was the one he was the Australian that went overseas he lived with the Macedonian gypsies he brought back this incredible Macedonian music introduced it to a lot of us and when and that was the time when I was just learning all the Italian things and he was just encouraging me go for it 
you know, keep doing it. What you're doing is good. And um, it, it's, um, it is really important for us to encourage each other, you know, uh, uh, rather than compete with each other. Um, and he's one of those encouraging persons who is very collaborative and he's like one of my musical gods. <laughs> well, we met on yeah. social media because I had posted his um, episode last year and you had commented yes. on it and then I had looked you yes. up. And yeah, that's a nice link. Yeah. yeah, but just to set the record straight, so he'd gone to Macedonia and studied this music, but when he came back, he realized there was this incredible Macedonian community and he tells a story yes. about that. Yes. So if people want yes. to check out that episode, they should. Oh, he's yeah. A, uh, he's one of our legendary musicians because he's always exploring. He's endlessly creative and he creates new instruments, which I just totally admire from things like rubber gloves and plastic tubes. You know, he, he's, um, he is one of our country's national treasures, I have to say. And I'm very fortunate that in the um, in the early '80s, or late, that's when I he lived in um, our town at that time, and I got to know him a bit, you know. And he used to come to our house, and we used to have jam sessions, and yeah, it was wonderful. Okay. Yeah. You, yeah, in um, in 2007, you were commissioned to write this anthem to celebrate yep. the women's right to vote in the pr province that you were living in? Yep, in Victoria, 100 years of the vote, yes. Um, that was a really epic commission. Um, I thought, how the hell am I going to write about this? Oh, my God. How do you write about women? It's massive story. Uh, but I, I had um, the Victorian Women's Trust um, <clears throat> commissioned me, uh, Mary Crooks of the of the Victorian Women's Trust commissioned me and she in a way became my sub-editor and I wasn't used to working <laughs> with a sub-editor as such. So I'd write and she'd go, oh, why'd you, why'd you write that word there? And I went, oh, no one's ever kind of done this to me before. I wasn't not comfortable. So, oh, this is my art. Leave my art alone. And then I went, you know, get over yourself, Kavisha. Uh, this is a commission. She's commissioning you. And it's a fair enough question. So I had to really think. And, you know, in the end, I just loved the process because I had to I had to kind of respond. But at the same time, I had to realize what my response, the energy where it was taking the song. And I um, and she guided me uh, without too much. She didn't say, oh, change that. She goes, mm, it sounds like you're saying this. And I realized that every little letter was really important the way it was done. So <clears throat> I had a big learning process with that song, which started, uh, I thought, I need a way in. I need a line which is going to express the philosophy, if you like, of this song. Because when you write a anthem, you need to have a philosophy. Where is it coming from? And I had to, I knew I had to have a visual line that would show people where this was going. And um, <clears throat> we were in India having our honeymoon. So the, um, so 
<laughs> and we're watching uh, TV, the local TV, and on the TV came a um, an ad about microfinancing women in jobs uh, to create their own businesses and so on. And it was a marvellous ad. It was these women coming over the hill. They either had a child on their hip or they had a jar of water or some work that they had been doing. They were holding that work and they eyeballed the camera and they said, women have the power. That's it. That's all they said. And then the next woman come over the hill and said, women have the power. And I'm going, I have never seen anything like this. This ad would never be allowed in the West. We think it's repressive over there. But we are, there's repression here in the other ways. That, oh. And I thought, that's it. And that's my line. That's my line. That's my angle. That's my philosophy. Okay, I won't use those words, but how can I bring that philosophy into the song? So uh, Victoria being a gold mining, have this huge history of gold mining. <clears throat> and the um, the gold, the, the effect of people running off to search for gold had a huge effect on, on our, uh, our state. Affected families, affected children. There was um, a lot of fathers abandoning their families. There was a lot of terrible side of that. Uh, so the line I came up with, from that ad was women are the real gold for all of us to treasure that was my first line and once I got that then I ran with the song you know so and that was um we had 642 women 42 women were smuggled in we we're only legally allowed to have 600 <laughs> but we couldn't turn the 42 away uh, so all we we workshop the song I sent out, I recorded all the parts, um, sent them out to all different choirs around the state and who wanted to be part of it. And the Victorian Women's Trust uh, were fantastic because they, I said, I don't want to do any administration, please don't give me administration. I just want to do the music. So they backed me up. Uh, we had, we hired the town hall, the uh, Northcote Town Hall for the month up to the projects so all everyone had rehearsed everything but we people bust in they had creches organized uh and for four weeks we had four saturdays and then boom we did it and it was unbelievable <laughs> one of my best ever jobs mm. what a beautiful project people can oh, see, see that on youtube the... yeah yeah uh the women's anthem love and justice mm -hmm. yes yeah. There was another song of yours. I was hoping you'd sing the Fearless Note, which must be one of your most requested oh, songs. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. I better drink some more coffee then. You can say no. <laughs> mm. I'm going to take the challenge. <laughs> okay. Here's um, it's another song. Um, Another song about um, what you do as a musician uh, and it comes from me sitting in a bar 
<clears throat> in in Ireland and sitting next to the great Liam Clancy uh, singer, wonderful singer, and then and he he with his brothers and Tommy Macon uh, in the sixties they were famous for wearing their white uh, fishermen's jumpers and singing Irish songs and um, bringing Irish music uh, in a new wave of Irish songs to America in the sixties, and um, this was um, back in maybe early 2000s, I was in a bar with singing with him, uh, you know, with some friends and we were jamming and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm next to one of the major, major singers of the Irish tradition. Um, and I thought, I've got to ask him something. I've got to ask him a question about music because, you know, I'll lose my opportunity if I don't do it now. When you're a singer, what is it that makes the great performance? That's, I think, more my question. And he says, okay, we had been sitting in the there for a few hours. You know, everyone, it was really flowing by now. He says, well, first of all, you've got to tell, tell the critic to fuck off. And then you've got to see the song inside yourself. And then when you see the song inside yourself, the audience will see the song. That was a very important teaching for me. Very important because I was very nervous often. A lot of mental noise and all that stuff with self-critical thoughts and all that. And he gave me permission to just let that all go and really get into that interior world of performing. So <clears throat> And then I was doing a, I was doing a, um, I was doing a uh, support for Luca Bloom, uh, um, and uh, in, in in Fremantle, Luca Bloom is the brother of uh, the great singer Christy Moore, and um, I, and he came into the dressing room, and his dressing room had heaps of flowers and sandwiches and everything, and I was a support act, so I had no, nothing in there. <laughs> And um, was like a nun's cell. <laughs> and um, he said, how are you? I said, oh, I'm really, really sketchy at this. He goes, Kavisha, now listen to me. When you go on the stage, you take the stage. It's your stage, not my stage. When I went and toured with the Pogues, there were seven of them. And only one of me, and I worked as hard as the seven of them. So you go out there and you take the stage. And then another amazing teaching is that every artist, no matter how small, whatever, that moment on the stage, that's your stage now. The moment you walk off no longer belongs to you. And that's right. Yeah, so own it, take it, take the space, create with your, with your energy, your music. Um, and don't be afraid. Uh, then a little la later, a few years later, I was doing another support for another Irish band. And this was in um, down in St. Kilda. And this was a band called Keela, K-I-L-A, Keela. And Ronan O'Snoddy is the, the, the lead man with the, and he plays the Bowron and, uh, and, 
he asked me, how are you going, Kavisha? I said, oh, I don't know. I think I've worn too many colours. Everyone's wearing black out there. <laughs> I feel I feel really nervous. He goes, Kavisha, you've got to sing the fearless note. I went, holy shit. That's, anyway. <laughs> so my Irish masters, you know, give me the spiritual teaching <laughs> of music. So this, I put it all together in this song called The Fearless Note. I'll just tune up. Here we go. Well, I met you in Paris Bongus Cafe You told me your girlfriend was jealous and it's hard to live that way When I was young you were a legend Playing the blues in our little town Now you're out here on the edge Trying to get a gig somehow you play the splendid chord that unifies all things you sing your song for you belong where the fearless note shall Rings 
incredibly moving thank you so much thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you <laughs> i told other guests it's when i get these what feels like a private concert of course it's going to go out to the world <laughs> and i i love the intimacy of podcasts and how someone could be going for a walk in their forest and listening to kavisha and maybe they've never heard your voice and it's <laughs> going to be such a revelation to hear your songs oh thank you so much and i i, I really appreciate i have to say i, I just love what you're doing because as I said before, you do feel a bit like a weirdo when you're a musician in this very materialistic world. And um, <clears throat> perhaps maybe because our Western world has kind of lost its sort of way a bit with its, um, you know, used to, in a way, understand music. And I think it understands music less because it's just so commodified and it's been so commercialized. So um and i guess i'm always seeking for that deeper that's the, that's the thing that i thirst for you know and that's why i love what you're doing because you're talking to people about what is it they're actually doing that's nothing to do with them record sales and promotion i mean of course this is of course it's promoting uh, in the sense of but you're sharing uh, 
and you're creating community by by doing this and and that's what I love I'm a really big fan of people who create community so it's an honor to be on your show and be in company with other amazing musicians people I've never heard of so it's so great great to to hear about what they're doing through your work so thank you for having me okay well be well and uh, have a lovely day ahead of you and thank and you we'll be in touch I, I, I was gonna ask you if you have a, another album coming out soon Oh yeah, I've been saving. <laughs> I've been saving up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I've got enough money now to start. I had to do a few paid gigs <laughs> to yeah. get things that rolling. And uh, yeah, I'm. I can actually see now it's a possibility. A few months ago, I was feeling pretty bleak, but no, I think it's going to happen. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, Thank it was hard you. getting out of the pandemic and getting enough. Yeah. Gigs. Well, the yes, that's it. That's it. But, you know, things are starting to slowly crank up. Well, let's be in touch when you're ready to release your album. Maybe we can put out a little bonus and oh, steer people. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And go well yourself with all your beautiful music you're making. Someone should interview you. Actually, yes, I've just been invited to be on a couple of, of really nice podcasts. So I'm very happy about that. Great. Yeah. Well, maybe on your show, though. You could get uh, one of your friends to interview you, be you. A couple people suggested this. Maybe that would happen <laughs> in the future. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thanks for following the series on your favorite podcast player and sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, all of which help find new listeners. I have lots more episodes coming in this season three with a fascinating diversity of musicians and their stories and music. Have a great week. I'm an independent podcaster and I really do need my listeners' help. Please consider buying me a coffee. The link to my Ko-fi page is in the description. Every dollar helps me cover the costs of this huge project. Thanks so much.